Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello, welcome to another episode of Clear Choices. I have an incredibly dynamic guest today. He's a New York Times bestselling author of multiple books, including Wealth Can't Wait, Tribe of Millionaires, and Miracle Morning Millionaires. He's also an owner and operator of one of the top real estate companies in North America, doing $12 billion of real estate sales. He owns a private equity firm. And most importantly, he's an active and involved father and husband. And uh, the life he's created for himself allows him to spend a lot of amazing time with his family. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on, man. It's great to be with you. I, uh, I really appreciate you being here. So... You know, I know a lot about your history. I've done quite a bit of research and I've heard you speak before. You're a very dynamic, compelling speaker. So just to give people a little bit perspective of where you are now, and you know, you can share numbers if you want to. I won't share numbers, but you know, you've, you've accumulated a really significant amount of wealth. And obviously by the title of some of your books, that's been a focal point in your life, uh, or at least in your adult life. So why don't you at least talk to us as a starting point of, you know, what about your background or what choices you made in the last 20 years to kind of put that sort of emphasis to create the enterprise that you've created? Sure, Rob. I mean, it's I have enough money now, I think, to last a lifetime. I think, you know, sort of something cataclysmic or stupid beyond belief. I, I don't think I have to worry about money for this lifetime. Money's always been important to me. I was a C student, but I liked working. I I remember working construction as a kid, landscaping, and I just enjoyed getting paid for my labor. And then I started my own lawn mowing company, and I enjoyed getting paid by servicing people and taking care of people. And I eventually had three trucks running for me at age 17. But all this time that I was doing that, I was just a bad student. Like I didn't really apply myself academically. Um, But money to me represented freedom. And today I'm financially free because of that kind of focus on that. So talk to us a little bit about what got you started on this path to defying economic gravity and kind of give us a little overview of what you did and what it what it took. So I always wanted to be financially free. And it took, I think it takes that decision. Like, I think really that's where it starts. Like I just decided at a young age, I wasn't the star athlete. I wasn't the most popular kid at school. I wasn't super unpopular. I wasn't a complete klutz. I was just kind of middle of everything always. Mediocre, I guess, the middle. But uh, making money was something that turned me on and it made me feel free more than anything. Like I, when I had money in high school, I could, I had my car, I could put gas in it and go wherever I wanted. I didn't have to ask my parents for anything. Um, and so to me, money went free, meant freedom. And because of that, I was always willing to take risks around money. And I was willing to start my own lawn mowing company. I was willing to go into real estate sales, which is not a high safe position. Before that, I was in computer sales. And so. You know, I think the choice and then the awareness around the choice. Like if you wanted to be a great fitness trainer, you would 
probably start off just pumping iron and then you'd learn about nutrition and then you'd add all these layers. In fact, I recently read Total Recall, the story of Arnold Schwarzenegger. What a great freaking biography that is. Right. But as he got better and better at bodybuilding, a lot of it became nutrition and different things, right? That you add on and layer onto your levels of excellence. And I think money is the same way. You start off with that decision, hey, I would like to be financially free. And then over 10 years, you learn all these things. So all of that prepared me like that sort of willingness to take risk and, and just get out there and knock on doors, whether I was working in tech sales or landscape architecting. And then I just kind of got lucky. You got to get a little bit of luck in life. In fact, I was sitting with Richard Branson once and I said to him, you know, he, said, he said to me, people say I got lucky because I got out of the record business and into the airplane business at the perfect time. And he said, I did get lucky, but the only way you win in life is to put yourself in a position to get lucky. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people that are hard worker and that have made it, hate it when I say I got lucky because they're like, you're just devaluing what you did. But that's not true at all. I'm not devaluing what I did. What I'm trying to say is I don't think you have great wealth without a certain amount of luck, no matter what, whether it's timing, whether it's the economy, whether it's the right industry. Bill Gates said he got lucky. But anyway, so, so what was your luck? My luck was Keller Williams, just catching the Keller Williams rocket ship. So my mom was a housewife and a military officer's wife for many years. My dad was a lifer. And then when he retired, she got looked for a couple of jobs and started off in one, you know, uh, placing people for jobs and then became a realtor. That was her two kind of short careers. She was a hard worker. She was really good at what she did. And boom, the real estate career just took off for her. That company happened to be Keller Williams. Gary Keller is a future billionaire. His, his star is rising. I joined the company. They're still kind of struggling and, you know, in the dark, if you will. And they're not making any money at corporate and they're having a bunch of, bad franchises out there, but they're probably at 800 people when I joined. Today, there's 180,000. And Gary Keller's way of approaching success was to learn, 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 and then teach, teach, teach everything or a lot of what he was learning. So I got to be in that the throes of that kind of birthing of a great company where Gary was absorbing all this information and teaching us while he tried to figure out what to do to build his company great. So I got on board with my mom. I sold for three years. And then I said, look, I don't really want to sell. What else is out there for me? And Keller Williams was desperate for people to go buy franchises and operate them or they were hungry for it, if not desperate. And so I just put my hand up and said, hey, I'd like to go open some franchises. We didn't have any money still. We were still the middle of the middle class. But my mom uh, and dad backed me financially and my mom with her reputation also. And we went up to Dallas and started opening up franchises uh, together. And how, how old were you when you opened your first franchise? That would have been 29, probably. So 29, and you got the, you know, you got the, the luck of finding a company that is now the most dominant real estate company in the country, uh, size-wise and volume-wise. And you also had the support of your parents to start a franchise that you couldn't have afforded otherwise. So that's a great leg up, but it certainly still required a ton of work. Question, at 29, starting a franchise, was that scary? It was terrifying. I remember driving up to Dallas from Austin and every time I'd see that big golden, uh, the green globe and the city, the skyline, I would just feel intimidated and I would feel like, who am I to do this? Like, who am I, you know, a soldier of a, a son of a soldier, a C student to, to, to take on the city and try to transform it from Keller who to Keller Williams as the dominant force. Yeah. It intimidated the heck out of me all the time. And so, so how did that first office do? Like, how long did it take until you could go, wow, this office is successful? 
Well, we had the region, right? So we, Gary was looking for people. So as soon as anyone really put up their hand and said, I'm interested, we got that North Texas, New Mexico region. Keep in mind then people look at that now and go, wow, what a gift. But back then people were failing at these things everywhere. They were losing all their money on them. It wasn't like a desired product at that moment in time. So I got up there pretty quick and we had sold some franchises that were failing. I opened my first one in 96. And then I took over another one that was failing next door. It was almost like a fire drill, right? Because people had bought franchises. They were losing them. We were buying them out. We had an OP that was threatening his agents with physical violence. I had another OP that was dealing cocaine out of one of his offices. Uh, OP is uh, operating principal. That's right. The, the guy the guy that is in charge of running the franchise, he may not own 100% of it, but in Keller Williams, they want one decision maker. They call that the operating partner. So, so, was, so, but, so safe to say, though, at 29, when you started this franchise, you essentially had no net worth. Yeah, I had nothing. I mean, I had $35,000. I remember that. So from selling for three years, I'd saved up $35,000. And and, and, I, and I had a single family home I'd bought in Austin for $77,000. So you go through this fire drill of starting offices and, and the region. And at what point, how long did it take from age 29 when you started that till you got to a point however many years later where you're like, wow, I'm worth some number that is noteworthy for you. Yeah. So it probably took me 10 years, but it, I, I end up somehow around six franchises. I remember this and and I was le- losing 5,000 a month because I remember thinking, wow, I could survive seven months and then I'm out of money. My mom was making good money selling. So she would sell and put money into stuff. My dad had his retired pay from the military, which was like 60 grand a year. And then they they had a net worth of maybe a quarter million dollars. And I know this because they'd been in a lawsuit that they finally won and got some of their money back. Not a, not a big victory, but some kind of a victory from my dad's prior career. And so I'm building all these franchises. They're all struggling and sucking and basically breaking even or losing money, but it's all working out to one big break even. <laughs> and then, and then, but I'm also lucky in this, the market, the real estate market was really good and it was pushing upwards. And then I remember all of a sudden, you know, one of them, made a hundred grand and then another one made 200 grand and then another one. And I would say it was within five years of opening the first franchise that because I planted so many stores only really because I had to, that was my job. And then I remember they all started making money and all of a sudden I was making three or 400,000 years dollars a year. So it didn't really take that long, but, but, but it was a cluster for a while. It was a cluster, man. And I was signing all these leases. I remember like I had all these personal guarantees out. I had copiers. You know, if you're starting this stuff out, it's terrifying because you're like, wow, if this business fails, that's great for the investors. They lose all their money. But for me, I got to keep paying the rent because I personally guaranteed it. I got to pay for this copy machine because I guaranteed it, this phone system. And I remember all that stuff freaking me out. I remember buying a phone system for 15 grand. The guy promised me it would last for five years. And we outgrew it in like 18 months. Then he comes back. He's like, now you need the $40,000. I'm like, dude, (laughs) you said this phone would last. Because there's no more room on the switchboard. We can't put any more phones on it. Um, back then, as you know, the Keller Williams model was just to recruit new people as many as possible. We didn't even have a focus on talent. Um, so, yeah, it was terrifying. But the one gift, Rob, was that I had hitchhiked around the world. I'd been an outside salesman. I'd moved 10 times by the time I was 15. That All of that prepared me for like this high-risk environment that I probably couldn't do today at 50. I wouldn't be that courageous, but I'd be way smarter, so I might do better. But at that time, I was just kind of like all in. I didn't really care that. So how long did it take, let's say, for you to be worth a million dollars? 
Yeah, I did look at this the other day and I can't remember the exact number, but I would say it was probably, depends how you look at it. It was probably nine years or seven years of actually opening franchises. If you count the background I got though, because I started at Keller Williams in 94, I started opening franchises in 96, but I started in Keller Williams in April of 94. And that's where Gary Keller was pouring into me and teaching me. And I was learning the industry and I was a real estate agent. Made 50 grand, made 75 grand my second year, uh, made 125 my third, moved to Dallas, took a pay cut, hired a team, went back down to 75 and started opening up all these franchises. And um, it was literally a trial by fire. And I remember like really working every hour I possibly could. And, but it wasn't that long once the franchises got going. So, so nine years, if you count the real estate part. To, to, be, worth said, a, to be worth a million. To worth a million bucks. Yeah. Okay, I so, had all these franchises. They all just lifted at the same time. It'd be like having stock at Apple. And suddenly the company's just blowing up and you're like, holy crap, this is really going good. So you're let's say so let's just say you're 39, 10 years into this journey. Now you've built from thirty five thousand dollars of net worth to let's say a million dollars of net worth, and now you're it's eleven years later, and that million dollars of net worth you had then, you know, we as we've defined earlier in the conversation, you now defy economic gravity. So you're at this astronomical number above that. How did that hockey stick kind of curve occur? Yeah, so I could be at nine figures now, but I just kept opening. So the one other thing I did was I was super aggressive. So, and I look back on it, you know, I look back on it and I was a Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons playing humble kid, but I also bought a motorcycle and drove around, you know, Portugal when I was 23 years old. And I don't know what took me to do that because I wasn't the popular kid. I wasn't, I wouldn't walk into a party and start talking to people. I was kind of introverted, but there was something in me that was aggressive, I guess, or willing to take risks. And um, so I didn't just stop at six branches. I, I bought every franchise I could. I got to 15. I bought the master, I had bought the master franchise with my family uh, in North Texas, but then I bought the last one in LA. I bought one out in Florida. I bought one in, uh, uh, I got into one in Virginia. I got one into one in Canada. So Keller Williams is like, it's like Apple, let's say the Apple of real estate or the Walmart of real estate. And it's growing like crazy. But you only participate in that growth if you own stock. But unlike as an employee of Apple, where they give you stock, in Keller Williams, you had to go buy these franchising opportunities. And I was just buying as many as I could. And I would find good people and I'd bring them along with me as partners. And that was the accelerant for all this. That was the accelerant. So instead of, that's why I say in my book, plant trees, manage orchards, each franchise was a tree and I had to dig the hole, put the tree in, pour in the water, find a farmer to manage it for me prune it. You know, that's all the work. Like that's the hundred hour weeks, 80 hour weeks you're doing, but then managing orchards when the sun shines on the orchard, all the trees grow. That's the great thing about owning businesses or owning a bunch of real estate. When the business cycle takes you up, you're leveraged like 10 times, a thousand percent, right? If it's just you and you're getting better, your skill set goes up, you make more money. But I had 15 franchises at this point and four master franchises. So that's like 14 hundred percent of one individual. And it's a market that went up until 2006 that I got into in 94. So I got a 12 year bull run really till 2007, a 12 or 13 year bull run in real estate. And I just happened to get super aggressive during that time. Yeah. I love that. Hello listeners. I wanted to announce a very interesting and unique contest that we're going to be doing. 
As many of you know, I'm a coach and consultant and have worked with hundreds of business professionals, uh, helping coach them for both business success and success in life in general. And we want to put it out there to all of our listeners that anyone who shares the show, promotes the show on social media five or more times will be entered into a drawing for a free coaching session with me. So we would love to see uh, evidence of your shares uh, that can be found on the show notes of today's episode, how to do that. And anyone who shares our show more than five times will be entered into a drawing for a free coaching session with yours truly, Rob Iger. Thanks so much. So let's pivot a little bit. So, you know, you've, you've created this, you know, defiance of economic gravity uh, in your personal life. And that, you know, freed you up, as you've said, money meant freedom to you. So, you know, I know that you told me earlier that you, you uh, wanted to write books as a young person and you decided, hey, that's too hard. I'm going to get into real estate. And now flash forward, this freedom that you've earned uh, has bought you the freedom to write multiple books and you've started a, a, a networking group. So talk to us a little bit about those choices. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to be a writer, a fantasy science fiction writer, because I was kind of this dorky Dungeons and Dragons kid. And I wrote a book and sent it to a bunch of publishers. They all rejected it. It was just like a short story. Like I got rejection letters from everybody. And then um, I remember my first real estate conference when I just joined my mom as a realtor in Austin was in New Orleans, Keller Williams, New Orleans. And I happened to ride out on a plane next to a writer. And she was like, there's a writer's convention right within walking distance. I thought, wow, this might be God telling me something. And I always try to follow my intuition. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to follow this opportunity. So I snuck away from my real estate conference and I crashed the writer's conference. And I've never seen a more miserable bunch of people. At least the realtors are having fun on the dance floor and really enjoying being salespeople and full of life. All the authors look miserable. They're like, they're like had two jobs. They were banging away at their books. No one was buying them. I learned that 50% of all book sales are romance novels for crying out loud. And, and it's like a winner take all. But even the winners, like this one girl I met that was on panels, she's like, yeah, I'm still a post lady and I'm writing books and I've sold a bunch and I'm barely, you know, I make some money, but it's not a lot. And uh, I thought, well, crikey, that's not my path to freedom. Like, I don't see the financial freedom in that. So that was a choice. Um, 10 years later, uh, I go back to writing books and I find that being a practical business person, by the way, Rob, there was a lot of pain along the way. There was identity crisis. I had shingles from stress. Uh, I was because working. of the, because of the writing. No, because of work. Uh huh. Uh huh. Because of work. Like I mean, when I was building these businesses, you have to learn as running a business to really be a no nonsense person. You have to kind of shed compassion uh, to some degree. <laughs> I, I mean, I remember my first manager that was failing. I kept her on probably a year longer than I should. And I still tend to be too soft in this area. And then I started walking in my office and all the agents would look at me with daggers in their eyes. And finally, one that liked me came to me and said, you know, she's undermining you in the office. She's saying this about you and this. So this person that I was trying to give a second and third and fourth chance knew she couldn't make it. And so she started just undercutting me in the office. And, um, so I fired her and, uh, you just learn all these hard things. So when I went back to writing, I was like, wow, that poetic, soft, flowery side of me, I can't really find it anymore. It's almost like I had to kind of stab it to death, like if it, as if it was a throw pillow and say, <laughs> you will not be excessively compassionate to people that are failing. And, you, know, you will be a harder man and you won't be a, a Pollyanna. 
And that's why like that changed me as a person. And I don't mind the changes. I'm just aware of this. Like when I was younger and I hitchhiked around the world, I wrote poetry to people. I'd write, I'd see a beautiful girl. I was super shy. So I'd write her a poem and then I'd walk up and give her the poem and walk on by. I haven't wrote, written a poem in 20 years. You know, I'm like, I, I don't David, I'm gonna anymore. be I'm gonna be hurt if I don't get a poem from you after this. I'm I'm roses I'm, are red, right? Violets <laughs> are blue. Rob Eigner, I love you. <laughs> I I you know I'm I'm expecting a little better, but it's all good. <laughs> I don't have better. It's all gone. <laughs> so um, let's pivot again. You know, you you mentioned that your father was a military man. Uh, you mentioned to me that he was a a pretty hard guy. Yeah, a tough personality. How has the way you were brought up by him impacted the way you've elected to be a father? Well, I try to do a lot different from him. You know, I, cr- I create the boundaries he created. He was good at boundaries. He was good at teaching integrity and honor. But it was hypocritical because my dad would also punch you if you, you know, if he was, if he, he had a quick temper and he would knock you down if he disagreed with you. And I think he thought that was a way of raising a man. Like he thought it was a stronger way to raise a person, but he did it with all of us, my sister also. Mm -hmm. And um, so the things I take from him is firm boundaries and love of family. He definitely loved his family, but what I don't ever emulate is uh, physical violence. I've never laid a hand on my kids. I'm not judging that for others. I'm not going to get into that whole thing. It's not my business, but from my point of view, I use firm boundaries. Like this is acceptable. This isn't acceptable. Uh, this is your bedtime, you know, this kind of stuff. You'll be kind to others. Uh, you'll, you know, always say yes or no, sir, to people that are serving you and things like that. Some of that's good that came from my dad and some wasn't. But as a dad, I, I uh, definitely would never hit my kid. And, you know, I, I guess if I had a son that was completely unmanageable, I might. I don't know, but I haven't had to experience that. Uh, my son definitely is more of a handful than my daughters were. But I definitely, uh, I don't, I don't believe in that kind of physical bounce. I also grew up with a lot of fear. By the way, I think that fear created a high level of awareness in me that in some ways has served me as a business person, but I don't think it serves you as a happy human being. So uh, I have refused to, you know, hella raise my kids in an environment of, of fear. At least I'm doing the best I can not to have that environment. So, so talk to us about uh, GoBundance, this organization that you've helped start. I was years ago. 97 in a mastermind with a guy called Dr. Fred Gross. And he had been a rabbi and he had been a business psychologist. And he taught us to find a peer partner, someone else who's at your level and help have them hold you accountable to your life success. I met a guy called Pat Hyben. And for 10 years, Pat and I held each other accountable. And Pat was amazing at beating me up if I didn't do what I said I was going to do. One of the things about business and success is you just have to alert, align your word with what you say. The more you do what you say, the more powerful you get. The less you do what you say, the less powerful you get. Meaning that not powerful and over other people, but if you can have self-discipline and show that when you say something, it comes true, you start believing in yourself at a level that most people don't. And other people believe in you too. They know they can trust you or invest in you. They know that what you say is probably going to happen. Yes, that's super important, right? That's very true. And so we became peer partners. We changed each other's lives. Used to be all about how many hours we worked and how productive we were. Then we met Tim Rode, another guy. He joined our group. He became about fitness and passive income and not really hardly working at all. And then we started traveling together and doing adventures. So we added bucket list adventures. One day we we were kind of sick of each other. We invited one guy each on a trip to climb Kilimanjaro. 
And so we were six. And one guy said, hey, you guys should take this out to the world. People need this. So we started expanding it, inviting other people. And we really grew a tribe from like 11 to 24 to 50 to 100. It's almost grown almost geometrically. We're like 250 members and we're eight years old. And we're really following the technologies that Pat, Tim, and I used. We're all financially free. We're all healthy. We're all committed family guys. We got Mike McCarthy as well. And we're all in love with being great dads, great husbands, great community members, giving back to a cause, having bucket list adventures, being financially free, being in great physical health, and holding one another accountable to being the best men we can possibly be. And that's, so that's our tribe. That's, go, that's Tribe of Millionaires is the book we wrote about it. And Go Abundance is the name of the tribe. Yeah, I've read the book Tribe of Millionaires. I've read both those books and uh, Tribe of Millionaires really breaks down in a simple way how important it is who you spend time with, who you surround yourself with, and how that can lead you upward or possibly downward, depending on your choices around who you spend time with. Here's my belief, Rob. You change from the outside in. You make the choice to change internally. The choice is the most important thing. Like, I want to be better. I want to be more. I want to have financial freedom. But then you have to put yourself in a position where it's easy to change. And the easiest way to change is if everyone around you works out, the likelihood of you not working out is almost zero. If everyone around you invests in financially freedom generating assets, you'll start seeing that as easy. So we try to create that tribe where that happens and we've had a lot of success. And it's not my most profitable business, but it's definitely my most rewarding. To this day, I still, yesterday, I got a, a like a something, a gift from somebody that I don't even know who said, I followed you. I joined GoBundance. I've listened to your podcast and I want you to know you've helped me change as a man. And I don't believe I can change anybody, but just like so many people have helped me change Jim Rohn, uh, you know, Tony Robbins when I was younger, but Gary Keller, a million people that I know that have just influenced me in life. Uh, Pat Hyben, Tim Rode, Rock Thomas, Mike McCarthy. They've all just given me little nuggets that have helped me lean into being a more successful and more full person. And that's what we've created in GoBundance. I'm very proud of it, man. That I think is more of a legacy piece than almost anything else I've done. I love that. Uh, and, and just the, the fact that you have put yourself in a position not only to do that and write the books, but to be thinking about your legacy at such a young age. It's a, a gift that you've given yourself and, and all the people who've benefited from what you do. I heard you speak once and um, uh, I, I got a massive takeaway from something you said. And I was very, um, I guess, overwhelmed by the idea of like, hey, here's this guy up here talking about his businesses. He runs 37 businesses or whatever it is. And, you know, I at the time was maybe running five businesses and I was like, wow, you know, I've got five business plans and it's so hard to keep track of all the to do's and the goals and the metrics with these businesses. And you basically opened up a little notebook. And in that notebook, you had one page that had a goal for each of these 37 businesses, one goal. It was like, Hey, you know, this business, the goal is, make a million dollars. You know, this business is hire three managers. This business, it was just one goal for each thing. Right. And it's so simplified, kind of dumbed it all down. And you just said, hey, I check, I look at this every week and measure how I'm doing against those 37 things that fit on a piece of paper. And it just, it just blew my mind that someone who was so successful and seemingly had so much complexity in their life had made it so simple. So yeah. talk about that. Well, you boil it down. I mean, when I had my identity crisis and had shingles from stress, 
I was trying to do everything. I was assembling cubicles. I was hiring managers. I was hiring agents. I was buying the computers for the office and setting them up. And um, I just got all this coaching and guidance. And the most valuable one, I think, was like from a long time ago, but it was the richest guy I knew at the time. And he said, my secret to success. He said this, but I since read it in a book. Like it might have been Henry Ford way back when. But he said, um, here's my secret to success. I write down the seven most important things I have to do each day. And I do the top three. And then I talked to another guy. He's like, I managed 40 Hiltons for 20 years. For 15 years, I tried to get the bottom ones to do better. And it sucked and it drained my energy. And then for the last five years, I just tried to get the very best ones to do better. And I doubled my growth, doubled my results. And so simple things like that stick with me. And what I realized is if you just do one important thing for your business every quarter, every six months, you can change the destiny of that business. And if you just focused on your top performers and the very best people you have, your results will grow way faster than what you do. try to do. What I tried to do at the beginning is just take all the bottom guys and say, if you'll just do one more deal, we'll be so much better. If you start at the top and lead to the top and allow your organization to run in that direction, everyone else follows or gets out of the way. And so it's very simple, really. Um, you just want incremental improvements. But the other thing, Rob, is I leverage through really great people. And I have great people working in my organization. Uh, actually, those 37 businesses, I kind of chunk them down into groups of 10 and put a guy over them. There's probably 50 or 60 businesses now. And then I run through those people. And my goal is for them to be massively successful, massively wealthy. And I get out of their way and I let them do a job better than I could without me. But I still have to tune into the business. So I still have those key metrics. And I track a lot of stuff. I'm a, I'm a data freak, even on my personal health. You know, I've got the aura ring and everything else. But I don't get in their way. I, I, I don't second guess them. Mm -hmm. And I think learning to work through great people, tracking small but significant, you know, targets in every single business, that's all it really takes. I mean, how does Warren Buffett do it? You know, that's what I'm always asking myself a lot of questions, like, how do they do it? And if, if they can do it, why can't I do it? And that's what I asked as a little dorky kid all the way through my career. Why not me? Why can't I do that? There's no answer to that, right? So if you just say, you know, if you're saying, I'm going to do this, uh, a go big goal, all these little doubts come into your head, like, like from a beautiful mind, those little voices that weren't really there, those fictitional characters that are like, you can't do that. You're not worthy of that. That's not going to happen. No way. But if you ask those voices, why not me? Yeah. Well, you, really you, you, you went from the guy driving into Dallas, like, who the hell am I to why not me? Yeah, exactly. That's a good, that's a good analogy. I don't have, I'm not intimidated anymore by whatever comes my way. And, uh, you know, what I find is like when you try to do big things, extraordinary resources, almost mystical resources show up. To help you. And I think the reason for that is somebody has to be in that role. There has to be financially massively successful people, right? Because there are. So that's a pathway the universe seeks. And if you'll just put yourself in the path of that and the energy of that and in the flow of that and not doubt yourself, then resources will show up to get you there. At least been, that's been my experience. Talk to us a little bit about your process when making significant choices, decisions in your life? Do, do you have a process, whether it's business or <coughs> health or personal, like however you want to take it? Yeah, it's a great question. My process in the past was always just say yes and figure out how later. So I used to take on more and more and more and just say yes to every opportunity that came my way, almost everything. And I've changed that now, Rob. I'm, a, I'm no now. I'm trying to say no to a lot of stuff. Uh, but, the, but the process is a uh, more every year I write down a more of less of chart. So I draw a line down on a little paper and I write, what do I want more of and what do I want less of? 
And I try to lean my life always in the vision that I'm creating. I think having a vision is the most important thing for your life. And you don't have to have how to get there. You just have to have how, where you want to go and then lean your energy into that. And then life kind of will fold around your vision. But most people don't have a vision, so they just get what they get and they don't throw a fit. But back to your original question is my decision process is that. And when I'm writing that more of, less of, I'm trying to feel it from the heart. You know, I'm not a great meditator, but I do work on it. But I, I, I'm a very intuitive person. So I'm trying to sort of intuit what's in my best interest. And I think in the past, saying yes to everything was in my interest. The reason I've been so successful is I opened up so many doorways. But now as a father of, uh, you know, young kids again, now the answer is no. Like I'm trying to cut things out of my life mm-hmm. and keep it more simple. Okay, great. I really appreciate that share. Um, so this might seem like a, a silly question, but obviously there's tons of benefit, comfort, freedom that you've gotten from the wealth you've created. What's the cost of it? Has there been a cost, a downside to the wealth? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard to grow successful and retain your old friends. And I don't, I, I'm sure some people do it. I've had one or two friends come along with me, but mostly I haven't maintained a lot of friendships from earlier because the process of journeying towards wealth is a journey of transformation. So I'm not the same man I was. I don't play Dungeons and Dragons anymore. I don't um, go to the bars and hang out and drink and do stuff like that. So it's cost me friends. It's cost me a sort of poetic side that I had, a flowery side. I'm still, you know, kind hearted and loving, but I've definitely kind of lost some of that. So yeah, there's costs. It's, it requires an intensity. It requires a focus. Uh, it's complex. People just don't understand how complex managing a large amount of wealth is. It's not like, Oh, I'm wealthy. Life is easy. The reason I think so many stars blow it or people blow it when they get quick money early is just that there's a lot of complexity. You have to be on top of a lot of stuff all the time. And the other thing is you don't have privacy anymore. I have a lot of people that help me in life. They're amazing. I pretty much don't have any privacy. I have people in my house. I have people at work that read all my emails. They see everything pretty much going on. They manage my schedule. And then the other thing is you have to live a very scheduled life. Now that leads to some amazing vacations and great things that are on my schedule. But it's not like I can just say, I don't even know what I'm going to do next week. I got pretty much the whole next year planned out. And, uh, you know, as a kid, I hitchhiked around the world, did whatever I want. That was kind of liberating and wonderful. So yeah, there's, there's, there's sacrifices. Well, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad clear choices found its way onto your schedule. So I, I do appreciate you making the time for this. So, um, I want to read you a quote that I picked for you. And, you know, you talked a lot about intuition just now. And, uh, as I've mentioned many times on these, my episodes, it seems like many of the successful people I've interviewed always reference intuition as a big part of their, their choices. Uh, it's interesting to me. It's far less calculated and systematic than I expected. And so two in my choice of picking a quote for you uh, and for uh, my other guests, it's a lot of it's just intuitive. So I hope, uh, I hope this resonates with you. The quote is before you speak, listen. Before you write, think. Before you spend, earn. Before you invest, investigate. Before you criticize, wait. Before you pray, forgive. Before you quit, try. Before you retire, save. And before you die, give. So yeah, that's it? beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, I, uh, 
I mean, it, most of that to me is like this inner journey, right? And I think most of success is an inner journey. And uh, I, I was talking to some guys from stage the other day and I said, look, before you live big, you've got to, you know, you don't, before you try to look good, you've got to be good. Like the number one goal is to learn how to do your job well, to be good at all these different things. And you can't pretend that. You can't fake that. You know, you can fake a lot of stuff in life. And there are people on social media faking this abundant life. But if you really want long-term foundational success, it comes from like actually learning how to be good at something or whatever your craft is. And to me, a lot of what you said there re requires reflection. It requires thought. It requires what went well, what didn't went well, what, what, what have I got to improve, what don't I have to improve. And that, I think... You know, Benjamin Franklin said the unexamined life isn't worth living. And that's always stuck with me as like, you know, you know, and I'm very reflective and I spend time every week, every month, every year asking, what did I do well? What didn't I do? How can I be a better father? How can I be a better business person? How can I manage my health better? Mm -hmm. And um, and then in the answers that I get from that, I'm able to build just a little bit, little, you know, microscopic improvements, maybe half a percent a day or one percent a week. But if you just improve by 1% a week, that's 50% a year. If you multiply that and compound it over a lifetime, you know, I have my whole theory on why the top 1% get wealthier other than, you know, there's luck and there's education and there's privilege and all that. I get that. And compounding. But, <laughs> and com but, but, but yeah, if you, that's really it. If you choose the path of personal growth, you just keep getting better. It takes a long time, but suddenly you're, you know, in 20 years, I'm better at business today. I can do more in a year than I did in a decade in my 20s. Uh -huh. I may be doing more in one year than I did in my 10s and 30s added together. Right. So of course, I'm making more money. Things are going better and better for me. But it's because of this groundwork of 25 years that I did. And I see other people didn't do. By the way, I have the same privilege and have the same background. And they just chose to mail it in and manage life easily. And that's fine. I'm not criticizing that. I'm not saying my way is better. I'm just saying that as I observe from the outside, the it's a the choice. Growth, the growth that occurs from that effort you put in, just that little effort, doesn't show up in one year, but over ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, it manifests into such abundance. And part of that abundance is to do the things you mentioned in your quote. You have to learn to give. You have to learn to think. You have to learn to try not to criticize people. You have to learn. You know, all of these things are so spiritually true. But you have to pay attention, listen, and let them soak in against sometimes your own nature. Mm -hmm. And if you're if you're able to do that, it, it makes such a difference. So um, last thing I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, I always share some kind of st statistic that's relevant to the guest. And, you know, there's a there's so many statistics available about about money and wealth. But I want to ask something like really simple around that. You know, there's been many studies and even documentaries made about the fact that once you get to about $75,000 of income, there's not a massive shift in happiness for people, right? Like up until 75 grand in this country, you might be struggling on mortgage payments or rent or car payments or, you know, just functioning in life. And then around 75,000 statistics show that, you know, you have all the basic needs met. And then Sure, there might be some better vacations or there might be a bigger house or whatever as the income rises and rises, but the happiness doesn't change drastically. So I'm yeah. curious what your interpretation is around that and how it relates to you and, and you know, the, where you put a lot of your effort. 
you know, there's a great book called The Algebra of Happiness written by a professor from Berkeley. I can't remember his name right now, but yeah, I agree with that stat, by the way. Um, so I know some very happy people that are very comfortable at a hundred grand a year. They have their friends, they have their barbecues every weekend. To me, I think what makes you happy or makes me happy is purpose. Like I don't build more wealth now for money. I build more wealth because of, I love being engaged in various purposes. The, the purpose of GoBundance is to help men be better men, better fathers, better husbands, better contributors to society. Now we have a ladies division, which I'm very excited about. We have a family division. The purpose is to help our children grow into better humans. Each thing has a purpose. My private equity company's job is to to manage the investment of our investors extremely prudently and try to earn them a very fair and abundant rate of return. Uh, for me, it's about being around young people and seeing them succeed. I want to see you know, the guys that want it be financially free, just like me. So purpose to me is what drives my life now. And I think without a purpose, life is miserable. And with a purpose, whatever it is, with or without money, life is amazing. Love that. I love that. So, you know, you've shared a lot. We've covered a lot. Uh, is there anything, uh, a closing thought to the audience or just anything we didn't cover that you feel like would be valuable around our theme of the show, Clear Choices? You know, I think it is 100% a choice. It's a great title for a podcast because every single aspect of your life is a choice. I'd like better health. I'd like to be a better businessman. I'd like some more money. I'd like to be a better father. It's not related to IQ. It helps to have a high IQ, but it's not related. It's not related to EQ. It helps to have an EQ, but it doesn't matter. Uh, it's not really related to your position in life. It absolutely helps to come from more privilege, but I see miserable privileged people. I see horribly unhappy people that come from a lot of money. It's really all a choice. It just comes back to your choice. And then people say, well, what do I do? And I say, yeah, what do you do? Like live in the question, not the answer. There's no silver bullets, but the question is, okay, my choice is to be a better, to make more money. So then the question becomes, how do I make more money? And if you'll keep that question alive in your brain, your brain will find you all these incredible magical answers. People will show up to help you. People love helping other people. I, I find rich people to be massively generous and helpful to others. They just want to help people that want to help themselves. They don't want to help people that are like spurning them or spitting on them for being successful. Um, but I think people love to help others. And if you want to be a better dad, ask to be, how do I be a better dad? And there's like father's groups, like front row dads. There's, you know, there's just so many resources out there. And what you have to learn to do is, Make the choice and then live in the question and then receive, allow, allow the benefits to come to you over time and be willing to pay the price and go through the hard stuff too. That's all part of the journey. But the thing about life is it's going to be hard whether you try or don't try. So you may as well try. Life's always hard. It's one of the prices of life. So you may as well choose to be more and better and have more fun in life and make that choice. You know what I love about what you've said, and it's a great way for us to, to end the interview, is that... You know, a lot of people, I believe, and I think I'm victim or I, I fall prey to this way of thinking too, is, you know, I have a certain amount of wealth. And then I look at a guy like you who has more wealth and I say to myself like, oh, well, that would be easier or there'd be less stress or whatever. The struggle stops that there's a there there where it's easier than where I am. And what I'm hearing from you, which I find comforting in a lot of ways, is that the I don't want to say the struggle never stops, but the, you know, the, the effort and the curiosity, uh, never stops. I mean, it sounds like you still sometimes make 
a business decision that doesn't work out or you make a hire that doesn't work out and there's stress in just managing what you've already created. It's not over. It's not over just because you've hit some plateau financially. It's exactly the same, Rob. Your struggles, my struggles, and a billionaire's struggles are all exactly the same. I have the same doubts. I, I, I can beat myself up just as much. I often say I bought a bunch of assets in the downturn. And I, I always say, like, I bought these assets and I should have bought more. I don't know why. I realized the other day. I always say I should have bought more. That's a way of, like, devaluing and, like, diminishing what I did do, which was actually pretty cool. I took, and then I, then I listened to a podcast with a couple billionaires on it. And the host said, to one of the bill, you know, to two of the billionaires is a multiple podcast show. He said, like, when is everything ever enough? And I remember two of the billionaires on there said, it's never enough. Like one guy said, I want to buy this thousand acres in Florida and devote it to like a trust and leave it for all time untouched, but I can't afford it. And that's a billionaire. Like he's worth six billion dollars, right? I don't know what the land was. Maybe it was a hundred thousand acres, whatever it was. It was a big chunk of land that he wanted to buy and set aside for a hundred years. And he was stressed about affording it. And at that time, I was looking at buying this three and a half acre lot that's got a beautiful view and steamboat where I live. And I just felt like I couldn't afford to put the money into it. And I thought the correlation is the same. Yeah. The, the energy is no different for any of us. It's all the same. And once you understand that, and by the way, where I live, where I'm wealthy, and then I drive, you know, I might fly private into, a pl- into an airport and my plane's the littlest plane there. It's always the same. You're always feeling inadequate and not far along enough. And uh, I don't think any of that changes, except that as we grow in wisdom, we learn to appreciate our successes and be grateful for what we have and uh, not take it for granted and then just try to reach out and help others. And I think that's one of the great things about being 50 versus 30. The striving was so much more painful in my 30s. And today I'm learning to sort of accept and and be content and receive and then contribute to others from where I am. And it's it's a way better place. In fact, those happiness studies also show that people get happier after their 40s, I think. I don't know if you've ever I've seen, seen that. that. I have seen yeah. that. And, you know, I, I want to share one last epiphany and then and then we'll wrap up. And I appreciate your time so much. But, you know, like you had that epiphany listening to those billionaires, I've had the kind of an opposite type of epiphany where I was in a place where I was with, I was the lowest uh, net worth person in the room. And uh, I happened to be at a ski resort with some guys that were wealthy and were drinking the $2,000 bottle of wine that thankfully someone else bought, not me. (laughs) And I'm sitting there around the fire pit, enjoying the $2,000 bottle of wine and the beautiful sunset. And I'm like, yeah, you know, these guys might be worth 10 times what I'm worth or whatever, but the sunset's just as gorgeous for me as it is for them. This moment is just as good for me as it is for them. So it's sort of the opposite of like, oh yeah, yeah, their stress or struggles are the same as mine. It was the opposite. It was like my joy is just as good as their joy. It's, their joy is no better. Absolutely, man. I get it. And uh, I think you're 100% right. I mean, there's that fisherman story of the of the fisherman in Mexico that catches a beautiful fish and the businessman comes out and said, this is fish is delicious. We should build a giant fishery here and a cannery here. And the, the fisherman says, well, then what would I do? He goes, then you'd sell all these fish and you'd be rich. And he goes, then what would I do? He goes, then you could just sit around fishing all day, which is exactly what he was doing while dead poor, right? <laughs> and so there's something to be said for being where you are and accepting where you are. And, you know, I talked to a golf pro in Steamboat and he was asking me career advice. And I'm like, well, let me get this right. You ski all winter, you golf all summer. Sure, you don't make a lot of money, but you're living in like the mountains and it's paradise. Your kids are out mountain biking every day or skiing every day. 
man, it doesn't get any better than this. Yeah. What's you your, really want, what, what's your yeah. question again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but put your life on hold for 10 years like I did, which literally I gave up 10 years of my life and worked all the time. That's all I did and didn't have kids and had, a, you know, didn't pay as, enough attention to my firstborn like I wished I had. And, um, and you want to give all that and then maybe you'll be wealthy at the end and maybe you'll have the free time, but you have such a beautiful life now. I don't know why you would do that. So yeah, that's a wise, wise words, Rob. I love it. Well, uh, thank you for your wise words. Uh, I encourage everyone to go to davidosborne.com, take a look at some of the books he's written, learn a little bit more about them. Tribe of Millionaires is one of them. Wealth Can't Wait is another. Uh, take a look. He's got a lot to offer. The books are very much worth reading and you were a great guest today. Thanks for being here, Dave. Rob, thanks so much. You're a great host. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.